Good morning, church. My name is Chris. We haven't met yet. I'm one of your pastors here. I'd like to tag along with what Pastor Mike said uh, just a minute ago about Serve Asheville. I'm so, so proud of our church. I'm so grateful to be a part of a gospel community that really fleshes out our faith in real and practical ways. And so thank you for all of you who sacrificed some time out of your weekend uh, yesterday just to minister to our city. Um, for those of you who don't know, we partner with a bunch of other churches once or twice a year, and we just flood Asheville uh, doing good deeds in the name of Jesus. And it's been incredible to see what God has done through that. And my, my hope as one of your pastors is that that wouldn't just be a one-off experience for us that we kind of do, and then we go back to our everyday normal lives, and then we do it again, you know, six months later or a year later. My hope is that when we do kind of big outreach, big mission events like this, that this ultimately would be a catalyst for a new lifestyle for us as God's people, that we would just really begin to live out in the natural rhythms of our life a way of loving people around us who are far from Jesus in a way that would point them to Jesus. And so just want to commend you guys. You've been awesome. Every time we do something like this, you absolutely uh, kill our sign-up list. We run out of projects really quickly. And so just really grateful for your participation and being the hands and feet of Jesus here in our city. So appreciative of that. Well, this morning we're going to be continuing in our uh, message series called The Hard Sayings of Jesus. And today we'll be unpacking together what is, I think, one of the most mystifying, baffling, perplexing teachings in the entire Bible. Uh, this particular teaching has caused a lot of anxiety among Christians uh, throughout the centuries because it challenges, really, some of our assumptions about God. It challenges some of our assumptions about His forgiveness because for many of us, we've just grown up with this idea and we've grown up hearing that God can and God will forgive us of anything and everything, right? And so we go back and we study the scriptures and we come across these incredible, true historical accounts of people like Moses, you know, in the Old Testament. And we say, well, gosh, you know, here, here's a man who uh, committed murder and yet God chose him, raised him up to lead his people out of bondage and you know, we have all these other people. We, you know, we talk about King David a lot here and how God used him and how God said he was a man after his own heart. And yet King David was an adulterer who actually committed murder. And then we get to the New Testament. We get to the Apostle Paul. And here we have this, this terrorist who was involved in the murder of who, who knows how many Christians in the first century. And yet God used him in amazing ways to plant churches all over the world. And he wrote most of our New Testament for us. And the truth of the matter is, yes, God is a God of love. And he is a God of grace. And he is a God of forgiveness and all of those things. All of that is absolutely true. Uh, and yet we run across this teaching in the Gospels where Jesus says, listen, there, there is this one thing that you can do that you will never be forgiven of. And there's been a lot of kind of like speculation throughout the centuries, different pastors and Bible scholars and seminary professors about what this unforgivable sin really is. And so some have kind of speculated, well, maybe the unforgivable sin is, is like cursing God. Like so if you like take his name in vain, maybe God will never forgive you for that. Or some have said maybe it's denying God. So like if you say, no, I don't, I don't believe in Jesus, I don't believe in God, maybe that's it. Or maybe the unforgivable sin is, is suicide. I just had a conversation with somebody not too long ago who 
had somebody in a, in a church here locally, their, their sibling committed suicide. And the pastors of that church uh, told this poor lady, your, your sister is in hell because she committed suicide. And so that's kind of a popular one that people will throw out. Like maybe that's the unforgivable uh, sin. Now, some have, have kind of speculated throughout time that maybe it's a sexual sin of some sort whether it's being unfaithful to a spouse or perhaps it's homosexuality or something like that. And the truth of the matter is it's, it's none of those things. Now, none of those things are good. None of those things are good for us, but they're all forgivable. So what, what is the unforgivable sin that Jesus spoke about? That's what we're going to be talking about this morning. And so just imagine if I, if I were to come over to your house one evening, let's say you invited me over, my family over for dinner, and you said, hey, Chris, I want you to come in, and I want you just to enjoy our house. We have a big, beautiful home, and there's a pool room over there and a sauna over there, and there's a billiard table in that room. And just you come in with your family, and you enjoy yourself in our home, and we'll have dinner in a little while. And you, what if you were to say to me right after that uh, beautiful invitation, what if you were to say to me, hey, but you should know that there's, there's, there's one landmine in our, ha- in our house. There, there's only one. You probably won't step on it, but underneath one of the floorboards is, is, a, is a landmine. Like, I need to know where that is um, before I come into your house. And Jesus says, I forgive you of everything except this, this one thing. Okay, I, f- I feel like I need to know where that landmine is, don't you? And so that's what we're going to try to do. We're going to try to discover where that landmine is so we don't blow ourselves to smithereens. Um, so if you have a copy of God's Word, go ahead and open it up, turn it on, head to Matthew's Gospel uh, chapter 12. That's what will be this morning. We're going to start in verse 22. So we'll kind of rewind a little bit to give ourselves a little bit of context to this uh, really difficult teaching uh, that Jesus taught so many years ago. So we'll start in verse 22. It says, Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, that is uh, Jesus, and he, Jesus, healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Okay, so Jesus is doing his thing. He's doing what Jesus does. He's out there. He's teaching about God's coming kingdom. He's healing people. He's drawing these uh, massive crowds. And these religious leaders uh, called Pharisees, They're getting more and more angry by the day because they want people's attention to be centered on them. And so really, I think at the heart of it, they're jealous of Jesus. In fact, at this point in Jesus' ministry, Matthew tells us earlier in this chapter that they're already working on an assassination plot to take Jesus out. So just kind of keep that in the back of your mind as we work through the text this morning. So the crowd brings this guy to Jesus who's not only blind, but he's also uh, mute so he can't speak. And Matthew tells us he's also demon-oppressed. It's almost like the crowd wants to test the limits of Jesus' power. Because at this point in time, Jesus had already healed blind people. He already healed mute people. He had already cast demons out of people. But now they bring Jesus like the perfect trifecta. Can he heal all of this in one single person. Like, let, let's see how powerful this guy really is because if he is really the Messiah, if he is really who he says he is, if he's the Savior, if he's the Son of God, he's going to be able to do this too. And it, it's almost like you can sense that maybe some of them were thinking, he's not going to be able to do this. Like, he, he did the other ones, but it was one thing. 
This is three things. He, he probably is going to walk away. He's probably not going to be able to pull this one off. But Jesus, being God in all, he just heals the guy. He just looked at him, and he, and he heals him. And the man who has been blind, the man who couldn't speak, the man who had been tormented by a demon for who knows how long, maybe years, perhaps even decades, Jesus heals him, and this man just starts looking around and talking to people. I mean, how insane would that be? And the crowd, Matthew says, they were just amazed. They'd never seen anything like this. They had never seen anybody with this type of power to heal people. They're just dumbfounded that Jesus has this much power. And so they start saying to themselves, they start whispering among themselves like, hey, we think this could be the son of David. We think this could actually be the Messiah. This guy could be the Savior. This guy could be the Son of God that has been promised by the prophets for thousands of years. The guy that we've been looking for, we think this guy might actually be the guy. But the Pharisees are in the background watching all of this go down. And instead of celebrating what Jesus has just done for this poor guy, they're just angry. They're angry. They're mad. They're seething again because they're losing their grip of power on the people like why would these people come listen to the Pharisees when they can go out and listen to Jesus and watch him heal people every single day? And so what these Pharisees do is they make this bold accusation against Jesus because they can no longer deny his power, right? They, could, they, they can no longer just say, hey, he's a really good teacher, but he's not powerful because he's not God. Well, there, there's no denying anymore his power because he's healing people person after person after person. So the Pharisees could no longer deny the power of Jesus. And so they say, yeah, he's incredibly powerful, but he's incredibly powerful because Satan has made him powerful. He's powerful. He can perform all of these miracles because Jesus is satanic. He's evil. He's probably into like black magic or voodoo. This is a dangerous evil man. And so, yes, he's powerful, but you guys need to stay away from him because he's evil. And Jesus picks up on this, and he knows that he, they're saying this, and then he just, as he so often does, thoroughly shreds the Pharisees' theory in verse 25. Let's pick up there. Knowing their thoughts, he, Jesus, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, that's another word for, for Satan or the devil, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, he's referring to himself there, will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. And so Jesus calls their bluff right off the bat. And he says, hey, your, your theory that I'm doing this by some kind of satan satanic black magic power, um, that's just, it's absurd. 
Why, why would Satan attack his own kingdom? A nation divided against itself will be destroyed. Your argument doesn't even make sense. It holds uh, zero water. And then Jesus says, but, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out these demons, and clearly it is, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, do you, do you really want to be working against God's kingdom? It's not a very desirable place to be in your, in your life. And then Jesus gives him this story, gives him this parable to drive home his point. He says, look, if there's a really strong man who has a house and you just go into this really strong man's house and you start looting his stuff while he's sitting there, what's going to happen? You're probably going to end up in the hospital. So Jesus says, look, you better be stronger. If you're going to go in and tie up a strong man and loot his possessions, you better be stronger than him. And what Jesus was saying is, I am that stronger man. And when I want to go in and bind up Satan and plunder his house, I do it because I'm God. And then he gets to the heart of the teaching in verse 31. He says, therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, against me, will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. In other words, eternity. Wow, so the sin, the sin that is unforgivable, the sin that will never be forgiven, the sin that is sure to send people into an eternity separated from God forever, in a place that the Scriptures call hell, is the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. Now, what on earth does that even mean? Because if I, don't, if I don't even know what that means, how do I know if I've done it? Or how do I make sure I don't do that in the future? Like, this is kind of a terrifying thought, isn't it? And the mystery that has surrounded this teaching for centuries now, again, has probably caused more stress and more anxiety for Christians throughout the centuries than any other teaching in the entire Bible. Let me go ahead and, and tip my hand a little bit here. If, the, if this is something that concerns you, like if you're feeling anxiety right now, like, man, I don't know if I've done this or if I haven't done this, or I don't want to do this. Uh, if you're worried that you've committed this sin, if you tend to worry about your own salvation, you haven't committed this sin. Amen. The very fact that you're concerned is evidence that God is still working in your life that he's convicting you, that he's drawing you, that he's wooing you. It is absolutely impossible for a follower and lover of Jesus to commit this sin. So some of you can just take a deep breath, excel, relax. Jesus is really clear in passages like John 10, beginning in verse 27 about this. He says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. In John 6, he says this, beginning in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. It is not possible for someone who is truly a son or a daughter of God to lose their salvation. Salvation doesn't belong to us. It is from God and through God. It is a gift that he gives us. We can't, we can't lose what we don't own. Uh, I can remember as a, as a kid, maybe some of you can 
can relate. It's funny the things that stick in your memory as a kid. Isn't it crazy the things that you actually remember? But I remember growing up, I was probably six, seven, eight years old. Uh, we were living down in South America. And I, I remember there were times where my parents would have a date nights. And so uh, they would leave my sister and I with somebody else, a, a friend or a, fam- a, a, a friend of ours, their parents or some, somebody like that. And I remember just having this, this constant reoccurring fear in my heart and my mind. And what I was terrified of was that Jesus was going to come back and I wasn't really going to be saved. And so I had heard the stories and I, and I knew like when Jesus comes back the second time, you know, there's going to be a, a trumpet blast and there's going to be this noise and all this kind of stuff. And I was just petrified of this. And so I don't know why it seemed more scary when my parents were gone. Maybe like they weren't there to protect me from Jesus. I don't know what it was, but, but I, was, I was just terrified. So my parents would be gone and I would just be in the state of fear almost. And, and like I'd hear a crack outside or, or like some thunder or something. Like, oh no, Jesus is coming back. And, you know, I, I'd start praying again. Like, if I'm not saved, Jesus, save me again. Save me now. And, you know, and so like I probably prayed like 13,000 times to be saved when I was a kid. Anybody else a serial uh, prayer to receive salvation? You poor Baptist out there. But, you know, that, would, like, that, was, that, was, my, that was my story. We can't, but we can't, listen, we can't lose what we don't own. So what is the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit? What does blaspheme even mean? Like, this is not a word that we typically use in our everyday vocabulary, right? You're not going to come over to my house and hear, like, kids, stop blaspheming one another. <laughs> or if you blaspheme your sister one more time, so help me God. You're just, like, you're not, you're not gonna, we don't talk that way. And so we need to define our terms before we can understand what Jesus is really teaching here. The Greek word that Jesus uses here is blasphemia, which literally means to vilify someone, to revile someone. The idea here is one of hatred, one, one of defiant hostility against someone else. And that is exactly, precisely what is happening with the Pharisees. They were seeing Jesus teach with all of this power, They were watching as he healed people almost every single day, as he fed people, and in their hearts, instead of becoming tender towards him, tender towards the gospel, they they became defiantly hostile. They began to actually hate Jesus. So listen, I want you to understand this. This unforgivable sin that Jesus is talking about is not God rejecting people. This unforgivable sin is people rejecting God. Don't miss that. That's an important distinction. See, these Pharisees were not just struggling with like a little bit of doubt. And so if you are here this morning and you're struggling with doubt in your journey, Jesus is not saying to you like, you're out. <laughs> like you've, forgiven, you're, you've committed the unforgivable sin. There's no hope for you. These Pharisees had seen the work of God right before their eyes in undeniable ways. They had undoubtedly experienced the work of the Holy Spirit confirming who Jesus was in their hearts, and yet they spit in the face of God. They were defiantly hostile. We will not believe. It doesn't matter what you do, Jesus. It doesn't matter what you say. We will not believe. And Jesus was saying to these people, look, if you reject me, if you walk away from the wooing of the Holy Spirit who is pointing you to me, that is the unforgivable sin. In other words, God is not going to force himself on you. 
If you choose to walk away, if you choose to reject Jesus, if you choose to reject the working of his spirit in your heart who points you to him, he will eventually honor your wishes. And you might be thinking, well, Chris, why is blaspheming the Holy Spirit worse than blaspheming Jesus himself? I think we have to start by asking the right question. The right question is this, who or what is the Holy Spirit? There seems to be an awful lot of confusion, even in the church today, about who or what the Holy Spirit is. Oftentimes, again, even in, even in a church, you hear people refer to the Holy Spirit as an it or as a thing, like an impersonal thing. First, the first thing we have to understand is the Holy Spirit is the third member of the triune God. Amen. He's the third member, the third person of the Godhead. He is a person, not a thing. Just like the Father, just like the Son, he is distinct. And he has distinct and unique roles in this world. His role is to convict us. His role is to persuade us to turn from our sin and turn to Jesus. His primary role is to point people to Jesus. Jesus talks a lot about this in John chapter 16. I would encourage you to go back and read that. And so when we reject his work, the Holy Spirit's work in our lives, when we reject that, that wooing in our hearts, when we hear the gospel, that ultimately will lead a person down the dangerous path of completely rejecting Jesus. And Jesus is, is crystal clear that he is the way to God. He is not a way to God. He is the way to God. He is the only way to God. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Those are the words of Jesus. And so when we reject the one that confirms who Jesus really is, and that's the Holy Spirit, we place ourselves in a very treacherous place in our lives. Now understand this, this isn't typically a one-time act like, oops, I accidentally did it. <laughs> I didn't mean to, but I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I guess I'm just out of luck. This is usually a heart posture that someone adopts. And they live and they die with this defiant hostility towards the gospel and the Holy Spirit who confirms that the gospel is true. It's a heart posture that looks Jesus in the face and says, Jesus, you are not who you say you are. You are a liar. You are evil. I don't need you. I reject you. You are not God. And maybe we would never verbalize that with our words, but that's the posture of our hearts. That I don't believe you. I don't really believe you are who you say you are. I don't really believe that you're worthy of my life. And that is the path that these Pharisees were on. And so Jesus is reasoning with them. Jesus is warning them. He's perhaps even pleading with them. You see, even for them, it wasn't too late. And that's the good news this morning. If you're sitting there and you're thinking, oh gosh, like maybe I've done this. I don't know what's going on. Maybe, maybe this is me. The good news, if you are sitting here and you have breath in your lungs, there is hope. It's not too late, friend. But listen, do not presume upon the Lord. Do not assume that because you can hear his voice today, do not presume that because the Holy Spirit is drawing you today, that he's convicting you today, that it will always be that way. When I was younger, I had this really naive notion that I could just come to Jesus whenever I wanted. 
that I could just live my life in complete rebellion to God, I could just ignore Jesus' teachings in my life, and then one day when I felt like it, when I settled down, when I had my fun, then I could just kind of come to Jesus on my own terms, and that was foolish. It was incredibly foolish for a couple of reasons. Firstly, it was foolish because none of us are promised the next decade. None of us are promised the next five years, even the next year, even tomorrow. None of us are promised more time. That's why the scriptures say, today is the day of salvation. If you feel the wooing of his spirit drawing you today, that is the Holy Spirit. That is a miracle. Don't resist that. Don't quench the Spirit's work in your heart because there is no guarantee that it will be there tomorrow. There's no guarantee that you'll even be alive tomorrow. Do not presume upon the Lord. I've seen countless people over the course of my life that God was drawing. People who were clearly being stirred up in their hearts by God's spirit and they resisted and they resisted over the months and the years and to the point where they became numb to God's drawing in their lives. To the point where they became stone cold to the gospel. They became numb to the message of Jesus, stone cold to the wooing of his spirit in their lives. These same people who would at times be moved to tears as they heard about Jesus, as they heard about the gospel, as they heard about God's love for them, those same people who would just be like right on the precipice of believing and following Jesus, now, years later, completely dead to it. Just numb to it. They had rejected him and rejected him and rejected him and grieved him so many times that they were just numb to the working of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And that is frightening, friend. That should be terrifying to you. Listen to me. If you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. It is absolutely possible to resist and quench the Holy Spirit's work in your life to the point where he will leave you alone eventually forever. He will honor your wishes. And Jesus is saying, be careful, friend. Be careful. Do not presume upon the Lord. If God is working in your heart, if he is stirring your heart today, don't resist. Don't put it off. There may not be a next year. There may not be a tomorrow. And even if there is, you're running the risk of quenching, resisting, rejecting what God is doing in your heart to the point where you can no longer hear him or feel his spirits working in your life. You want to know what's frightening to me as I read this passage? Jesus was talking to religious people here. He was talking to religious people. Jesus wasn't talking to uh, the atheistic club of Jerusalem. He wasn't talking to, to pagans who are worshiping some foreign weird deities or demons. He's talking to religious people. He's talking to good people according to the world's standards. There's this chilling passage in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus says this, on the last day when he returns as king and judge, listen to the words of Jesus. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. 
And listen, by the way, part of doing the will of our Father in heaven is listening to the Holy Spirit who points us to Jesus. Verse 22, on that day, many, not few, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Listen, God's kingdom will not be full of good people or religious people. God's kingdom will be full of bad people who found their hope and forgiveness in the blood of Jesus. It'll be full of people who experience the wooing of the Holy Spirit, pointing them to Jesus, and they said, yes. They didn't reject him. They didn't push him away. They said, yes. Yes, I realize I'm a sinner. Yes, I realize I need a savior. Yes, I confess that Jesus is who he says he is, and I am trusting him in this life and the life to come. Come hell or high water, I'm with him. And see, these Pharisees, they had built their identity on good works, on going to the temple, on memorizing entire books of the Old Testament scriptures, on doing all of these things, these religious things, these hourly good things, but they resisted the Holy Spirit's working in their hearts, prompting them, pointing them to Jesus. And to those people in that generation and in our generation and every generation in between, on that final day, to those people, Jesus will say, depart from me because I never knew you. And many people will say, Lord, Lord, Jesus, we did all this stuff in your name. Went to church like at least twice a month. We fed poor people down at ABCCM. I didn't kick my dog when UNCA lost a basketball game. We didn't do, I did all these good things. And Jesus said, that's, that's fine, all that is good. But listen, I never knew you. I never knew you. We didn't have a relationship. When I, when I sent my spirit to, to woo you, when I sent my Holy Spirit to draw you to me, you resisted and you pushed me away and you walked away and you said, maybe tomorrow, maybe next year, maybe in 10 years, maybe when I'm done having fun and you blasphemed my spirit and you rejected me in the process. Depart from me. I never knew you. Friend, are you resisting the Holy Spirit's wooing in your heart today? Can you still hear him? Can you still still feel him? If you can, delay not. Today is the day. There may not be a tomorrow. And even if there is, you may be so numb from rejecting him that you can't even hear him or feel him any longer. Are you building your identity on something other than Jesus? Are you building your identity on a relationship? Are you building it on a job? Are you building it on money or material possessions or a hobby that you enjoy doing? Listen, friend, all those things will burn one day. They'll all be gone. The only thing that matters, the only thing that will remain, the only thing that will count in the end is your relationship with Jesus. That's it. All the rest is window dressing in this life. 
I want to give you three big truths from this hard teaching of Jesus, and then we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up. We'll sing. We'll go home. Here, here's the first truth I want you to, to leave with. When you hear that small voice of the Holy Spirit drawing you to Jesus, rejecting him in that moment can cost you everything. It can cost you everything. If you're a Christian here this morning, do you realize that's a miracle That's a miracle. The scripture teaches us that a part of the Holy Spirit drawing us to him, nobody can come to God. None of us seek God on our own. If we seek him, it's because he is first seeking us. It's his spirit wooing us and drawing us to him. It is a supernatural thing. It is a miracle that in that moment when we confess that Jesus is Lord, When we confess our sins and seek his forgiveness, it is a miracle that in that moment we become sons and daughters of the creator of this universe forever. If he's prompting you, if he's wooing you, don't resist, friend. This is a miracle, and there is no guarantee that it will ever happen again in your life. The scriptures say again and again, today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, not next year, not 10 years from now. Today, today, today is the day of salvation. If you sense him, if you feel him, if you can hear him, come to him today. Become a son or daughter of God today. Don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit's work in your heart today. It's too important. It can cost you too much. There's too much at stake to play games, even for another day, even for another hour. Don't delay. Here's the second truth from this hard teaching. There is no neutral position when it comes to Jesus. This is hard in our culture because we like to live in gray areas, don't we? But Jesus takes the gray off the table. He says right here, we just read this in verse 30. He said, whoever is not with me is what? If you're not with me, you're against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so this idea that we have in our culture, even in the church culture, we have, we have this idea, many of us, this thought that, hey, let me, let me, I'm cool with Jesus. I'm cool with Jesus. I don't hate Jesus. I just don't really like love him or follow him. I'm not gonna give my life to him. I don't hate him. I just, I'm kind of like indifferent. And Jesus blows that up. He takes that option and he shoves it off the table. And he says, this is really clear. This is black or white. You're either all in with me, you're my disciple, or you're working against my kingdom. There is no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. There is no gray area. We all have a decision to make this morning before we walk out of those doors in just a few minutes, and it's one that will define our lives and define our eternity. The question that we must all answer at some point in our lives is this, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Because he either is who he says he is, he is the son of God, he is the savior of the world, or he's a deranged, evil, narcissistic liar. Who do you say he is? There is no gray area. There is no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. And here's the third truth from this difficult teaching of Jesus. And this is the good news for you this morning. Jesus offers you hope and life today. So if you're sitting there and like your your spirit's kind of embroiled in anxiety and you're thinking, oh my gosh, 
I think this could be me. I think this could be me in Matthew 7 on that last day when Jesus says, depart from me because I never knew you. I, like, I think God's talking to me. This could be me. I want you to understand if that's you, if you're having those feelings, those thoughts right now, it's not too late. If you have breath in your lungs, if your heart is still beating in your chest, there is still hope. And if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, do you really think it's a coincidence that you're here right now in this moment listening to this ancient teaching of Jesus telling you not to delay, not to play games, to come to him while the sun still shines in your life? Do you think that's a coincidence? Friend, it's not a coincidence. It's not an accident. God has orchestrated this, this moment in your life to give you time to pause, to give you a chance to just pause for a moment in the craziness that is your life and consider what he's saying here, to give you just a moment, a brief moment in time to hear from him, to hear his voice, to hear the stirring of his of his spirit in your heart and your soul so that you might come to him and find your life in him. As we close this morning, I want to leave you with some of Jesus' first words as he burst onto the scene in his earthly ministry. This is recorded in Mark chapter 1 for you. Listen to the words of Jesus. Right as he comes onto the scene, this is what he was saying. The time has come and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the good news. Come to me. Don't reject my spirit's work in your heart. Today is the day of salvation. Come and find your life in me. The promise of the gospel is that no matter what you've done in your life, if you will repent, if you will turn from your sin, you will find forgiveness and life in him. He will make you his son or daughter. And if you haven't done that, if you've never done that, even if you're here and you're a religious person, you've been in church your whole life, he is drawing you today. Don't blaspheme the loving draw. Don't blaspheme that delicate wooing of God's spirit in your heart. Come to him. Find life in him. Today is your day. There may not be a tomorrow. Today is the day to come and know him. Don't reject his spirit's work in your life this morning. Let's pray. God, you are good. You are full of grace. You are full of mercy. You are full of love. And Father, you love us so much that you're willing to say the hard things to us that we need to hear, even if we don't want to hear. You don't teach us hard things, God, because you hate us. You teach us hard things because you love us. And God, so would you, would you just help us right now? Help us not to quench. Help us not to reject the work of your Holy Spirit today. God, thank you for, for saving so many in this room already. And I pray that you would save more. 
even today, even right now, even in this moment, God, that you would woo people to, your, to yourself through your spirit. God, that you would confirm in their hearts who Jesus is so that they too might find new life in you. Help us not to reject your drawing. Help us not to reject your spirit. We ask it all in the name of Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.